In a week where we thought the US Open was the biggest news story in the tennis world, that has been well and truly dwarfed by the Adria Tour controversy, where Grigor Dimitrov has tested positive to COVID-19. That's being followed by a spate of positive tests going to Borna Choric, Dimitrov's coach, Novak Djokovic's fitness coach, Viktor Troitsky, and Troitsky's pregnant wife. It's been a terrible 24 hours for Novak Djokovic, and there's plenty more to get through on today's episode of Breakpoint Podcast. We've got Nick McCarvel joining us, the tennis broadcaster extraordinaire from the USA. He's a wonderful custodian of the sport globally and an awesome broadcaster. Can't wait to show you or to show you his chat and for you to hear that. Val Febo here with you, and Joel Frucci joins me on the other line. Joel, how are you? Um, I'm good, Val. I'm a bit shocked, actually. Um, I think shocked is the right word. I'm a bit staggered by the uh, the events of the week because um, after our last show, it all started so well and good. Um, we had a revamped calendar from the WTA and the ATP, um, and we had some plans for the US Open as well. But uh, all of a sudden, we've got this massive spanner in the works that's been thrown up by the uh, the Asia Tour. And um, you know, looking at it uh, as we're about to do, it's just it's hard to believe what's what's going on. It really is. No, 100%. And look, it's it's something that none of us expected. And well, I think looking at all the footage last week, and we'll start with, with the footage that we saw of Novak Djokovic dancing with his shirt off in a nightclub, and then all of the players doing limbo in a soccer match, all hugging. So included in this in this group of players was Djokovic, team, Zverev, um, Chorich, Troitsky, um, and many, many others. Ivan Izovic was part of it as well, plus... Um, Djokovic's fitness trainer, Dimitrov's coach. But we'll start with the fact that the players and people that have contracted coronavirus are Grigor Dimitrov, uh, Borna Choric, Dimitrov's coach, uh, Djokovic's, so Dimitrov's coach, Christian Groth, Djokovic's fitness coach, Marco Paniki, uh, and Troiki, Troitsky and his pregnant wife, Alexandra. So that that's probably the most concerning one of the lot, that Troitsky's pregnant wife... Yes has contracted the disease. And it, it, that makes me nervous more than anything else. The fact that could that affect the fetus? Could that affect the baby mm. in, in any way? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not over this. I'm not across the sort of symptoms for, for um, unborn children. So it's, it, it's quite nerve wracking to be, to be quite frank, but the fact that the, imp, the images from the tournament were just so completely shocking. Nobody was social distancing. Players were hugging and high-fiving, sharing microphones. Spectators, it was a full stadium, Joel. Yeah. It was it a was. full stadium. <laughs> and it was just so concerning watching, considering what we've had to go through here. And th- there's been such an uproar about the protests that happened last week. And um, for, it, for albeit a good cause, but just no need for it at this certain time. It's... It's just been, it's been a disaster through and through because they just thought that they were above the pandemic. And Djokovic, it's not the first time that he's done that. We'll get to that after we talk about this news because I've got some things to say. But it's, yeah. it's just, Don't you yeah, I do. Um, no, it's <laughs> honestly, I'm, I'm just stunned at the snowball effect and just the lack and the, the disregard for coronavirus. It's, mm. it, have they been living under a rock? And you you made a good point to me last night, Joel, and you can elaborate on it. What were they thinking, and who advised them that it was a good idea to go and participate in this Adria tour? Yeah, well, look, I think the first thing that we should say is that 
I actually, I liked the idea of the Adria Tour in itself as an event because we've seen some exhibition events played. Um, also in Europe, obviously, we've had the Ultimate Tennis Showdown and that, that seems to have gone on without a hitch. But um, obviously, as, as we know now, um, and we were concerned about this from the very beginning. Obviously, we said that clearly in Serbia, there are some, some different rules that they're abiding by, which is a big problem in itself. But obviously, the social distancing thing was a major issue. We know how contagious this thing is. Um, and these these players, staff, um, you know, this virus doesn't discriminate. It, it, it just doesn't. And um, it was a concern from the very beginning. So it's really no surprise that um, it's snowballed like it has. Um, look, I, I think the buck, the buck stops with the organisers. Um, you know, clearly that, that's the source of the fire. Um, it's you just got to read the room. Um, yeah. You know, probably the vast majority of the rest of the world, if not entirely the rest of the world, is socially distancing, are living by these new normals. We can't just ignore this thing. Um, but I also have to wonder um, who who was advising the players or was, was anyone stopping them from being involved in this thing? Did anyone say to them, there's going to be a crowd, they're operating as normal, it's probably risky for you to do this thing because, um, you know, as we've seen, um, okay, the virus probably, um, you know, probably kills more elderly people and people with um, immune deficiency. But that said, we've seen a lot of cases where perfectly healthy people um, have been struck down by this thing. We just don't know how it's going to affect um, person to person. So everyone's at risk. And, um, uh, I mean, it's just there's so many un- unanswered questions here. It's really hard to know where to start. But, um, you know, as I said before, I think the buck has to stop with, with the organisers um, and it, it, it really just is just a complete lack of regard for the new normals that we have to live by and um, the things that we all have to do um, to slow the spread. And I think Nick Kyrgios said it perfectly. And I mean, another thing on the 2020 bingo board, who thought Nick Kyrgios would ever be the voice of reason? But uh, here we are. He has been the voice of reason because um, I, I think the term boneheaded is, uh, is, is the perfect word to describe how this thing was organised, unfortunately. Yep, the perfect description. Um, and Nick Kyrgios, imagine, but look, imagine Nick Kyrgios was in the position that Djokovic was in right now, and he'd done all of these things. And um, you know, we look back on uh, on Nick's on court disruptions and and all the things that he's been fined for and suspended for. I would call what Djokovic has inflicted on the world. I'd say is worse. Because this is a global pandemic and this is the li- like people's lives that you're playing with and with the influence that he's got to yeah. organise an event and to say that, yeah, Serbia is a lot further along than what the rest of the world is in terms of COVID-19. Well, like, actually, pardon? They actually aren't. No, um, they're not. We've, we... the, 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 yeah, the stats read that Serbia have almost 14,000 cases and if you can compare that to Australia, that's uh, we have pretty much half the cases. Mm. And obviously we're at a really critical point ourselves at the moment, but to say that Serbia is, is a long way ahead, um, you know, certainly compared to some of the Western European countries, certainly where it was really, they were really, really hit by this thing. Um, but you, you just, you cannot say that. You cannot look at the numbers and say that Serbia are a long way ahead because that is just flagrantly untrue. It's, and you're 100% right. It is. It, it... It's we're we're in a better position than what they are, and our restrictions have been so full on, with compared yeah. to compared to the rest of the world. And you know we may complain about it, but it's going to be beneficial for us in in the future. So 
we're kind of getting over it. We've had a little bit of a mini second wave here over the last week where restrictions have been lifted again or have been um, sort of uh, implemented again. But what they've done in Serbia is one of the most irresponsible things that I could have seen in, in probably the last decade. And, and I, I put out a tweet last night that Novak Djokovic, his, his COVID-19 period or isolation period in general has been torrid, not just for him, but for his entire family. So he's preached anti-vaccinations. He's preached drinking polluted water. He's ignored social distancing measures completely. And that footage of him dancing with his shirt off in the club, I will, unfortunately, that will be forever ingrained in my memory. Seemingly refuses tests. And, well, that one you can take out because he has since been tested in Belgrade. But the problem is he's been tested and the results will be revealed tonight. But he did it after Dimitrov tested positive and went across the Croatian-Serbian border. So he's taken it into yeah. another country. If he's positive, that's that's just, that's just a disaster waiting to happen if he's positive. It really is. Then his wife is essentially called COVID-19 a conspiracy by that Instagram post that she made a couple of months ago. And his mother and father have both attacked Roger Federer verbally calling him arrogant. So it hasn't been a good period for the Djokovic family. And I think for someone of his social stature and the influence that he's got, it's just unfathomable that he, as an organiser of this event, and one of the organisers of this event, was not in line with the rest of the players to be tested for coronavirus. It's disgusting. And he's the president of the Players' Council as well, Joel. I'd call, I'd be yeah. calling for his resignation there. Noah Rubin's been pretty vocal about it. The American player, we're trying to get him on. Um, but he's been really vocal. Mitchell Kruger, the other American player, has been pretty vocal. Nick Kyrgios has been vocal. A lot of other players, even Naomi Osaka put up a tweet. It was very subtle, yet very powerful in what it said. It was the one with the, the Muppet pig with its eyes, Joel. I'm not sure if you saw it. But... Um, oh. No, it was it was it was quite good because it was subtle. She didn't say anything, but she did at the same time. So a lot of people commenting on it, and for someone of Djokovic's stature, if as I, I go back to the Curios point, if Curios did something like this, he would be hung, drawn, and courted by the media, and players, and fans. Djokovic is getting no such treatment, and honestly, if. If he tests positive, I would almost call for a suspension. I don't think he should be Players' Council president anymore because it's just showing a lack of regard for safety. And yeah, um, and, and yeah, you know, even even if he doesn't test positive, Val, um, you know, I, I think I think he's really got to think about his his position anyway because, um, you know, he's really just he's really as I guess as a as a player, he's really just the tip of the iceberg. Obviously, we've seen. Warner Chorich, Grigor Dimitrov, all, all the people that, that we reeled off earlier, they've all tested positive already. Um, you know, so I, I think to really just have, I suppose, such a such a, a disregard in a lot of senses for, for life, for human life, for your colleagues, um, and to, to really set up this workplace, really, um, that is just completely counterproductive and really unsafe for your colleagues. I think that really need, he really needs to think about that. And, um, yep. you know, clearly uh, clearly there is division amongst the players as well about Novak's leadership. So, um, look, I, I think he's really got to think about it. I mean, whether we actually actions that we don't know, but, um, you know, if there's going to be pressure, pressure from the players, um, as the leader of the, of the ACP Player Council, he almost really doesn't have a choice but to listen um, to what his colleagues are saying. 
Yep, uh, 100%. And look, it's it, he, not even jumping on that US Open Zoom call last week is testament enough to show that the leadership isn't there. You get yourself into a role where people rely on you and you're acting like you're acting like this. It's 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 immature. And for someone and for someone of his influence, for someone with his stature on the game, it's he's committed absolute social suicide, political suicide. Um, I, I just uh, like this. I, I don't think there's any coming back from this for Novak Djokovic because even no matter what he does on the tennis court, he'll always be remembered for this and how he's handled the COVID nineteen crisis for tennis and for himself. And it's been absolutely nothing short of horrible. It's been nothing short of horrible. And uh, look, I would almost, if he does test positive, if I was the ATP World Tour, I would honestly consider a suspension because it has been a blatant disregard. I don't know if that's too far, but I've seen a lot of people tweeting about it this morning, hammering him saying, well, if this was any other player, a suspension would be on the cards. It's a blatant disregard for the rules and for public health, really. It's 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 so yeah. disappointing. It's so disappointing. And with you know the week that the tours have just announced that they're coming back, this happens. And it's I've I've still got no words, Joel. There's no words to completely comprehend what's happened over the last 24 hours or so. And it's it's just a complete disaster. And the the players that have tested negative are Dominic Team, uh, Chilich, Zverev, Rublev, and Damir Jumhur. But with with those five players you'd need them to be isolating for the next probably week or so and keep getting tested because the symptoms may not show for for two weeks. And Dominic Team has already gone to France to play in this ultimate tennis showdown. So even though he's tested negative, he's not clearly out of the woods yet, is he? Yeah, well, um, from what we've seen from from other cases, the, the general consensus is that you need to give the virus probably two to three weeks really to live out its its full lifespan. Um, so I guess it's good that those guys tested negative. Um, but I, I don't think that, um, they can really sort of take it to the bank as, as being in the clear. I, I would still be getting tested pretty regularly if I was those players. Alex Verov, um, has, has, um, announced that he's going to continue with his testing, which I think is a great thing. Yeah. Probably shows that, um, he's taking it seriously. So look, it's good that they've tested negative, but, um, clearly not out of the woods yet. Um, Speaking of, of the tour, Val, given that this has all happened, um, we've seen obviously that the, the ATP, the WTA and the ITF um, and also the USTA have have, um, have put out their plan for the, for the US Open, but the re, reworked calendars for the rest of the season um, have been announced. Now that we've seen all this happen, what kind of... I mean, what kind of effect do we think this is going to have um, on on the players? Obviously, we know already that, um, especially amongst the top sort of bracket of players like Ash Barty and Rafael Nadal, there were already some concerns about um, health and safety, um, not not only at the US Open but also on the, on the tour generally. So, I mean, what, what what kind of effect do we think this is going to happen? Uh, is going to have um, for the players now? Um, I, I certainly I certainly expect that there's going to be a lot more skepticism um, at every level, really. Yeah, 100%. And look, we didn't preview it off the top of the show that Nick McCarvel, the American Geno, will join us. Um, he's one of uh, America, or one of the world's best tennis broadcasters, and we do chat with him about the US Open, and we spoke to him yesterday, so when the Dimitrov news did break and, and what he thought about the tours coming back and what this news is going to do um, to the tours possibly coming back and whether it will result in a suspension, um, we won't tell you what he said, but I 
do um, I, I think that there's enough time at the moment between now and the tours coming back. If people continue to test positive because of what's happened with the Adria tour, then the ATP and WTA will probably need to look at suspending the tours further and probably just cancelling the 2020 tour. But money talks. And the tennis economy is something that, well, it depends on tennis going ahead. It goes hand in hand, of course. But um, not just for players, not just for officials, but for people like us journalists who who need the sport to run to survive, really, in order to make money and to, um, to try and to, to have something to talk about. We've obviously had a lot this week with what's happened, but... Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm, I think people are at a. It's their personal preference whether they want to go to America or not. If I'm, if I'm any of the big players, or if I'm, if I'm an Australian tennis player, I'm not going. I'm not going to America yeah. to play. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just. I'm staying home. I don't even think I'd consider going to play the French Open. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I don't like Europe. Is now like we've seen what's happened in Europe. We've seen what's happened everywhere. Why are we traveling internationally? Why are we staying in a bubble? Why, why are we doing any of this? It's it's it just it's not feasible. It doesn't yeah, seem well, feasible if, to me. If, and if you're an Australian player, it's just it really like if you think about it, it's just completely nonsensical to travel anywhere at the moment, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Obviously, if if you look at every other continent on Earth, they're probably apart from Africa. Really, every other continent on the planet has had a major hotspot for coronavirus. Yeah. Um, in its lifespan, since it broke out, obviously we've had Western Europe, um, Russia, China, the States, now South America. Oh, South um, America's a cesspool at the moment of COVID. Oh, it's it's just it's really really hard mm. to watch. To be honest, what's happening in South America at the moment? But just if you look at things globally, no corner of the globe really, apart from probably Australia and New Zealand, um, has been horribly affected by this mm. and that's not to say that australia and new zealand haven't been horribly affected by it because you know people have passed away people have died but in comparison to a lot of other parts of the world um australia and new zealand have dealt with things pretty well so if i'm if i'm if i'm nick curios if i'm john millman if i'm ash Barty, um whoever in australia james duckworth you you name it um i'm not going anywhere i'm i'm staying where i am to be brutally honest. And so long as those players can support themselves, um, and we, we certainly hope they can, obviously a lot of them will be doing it pretty tough at the moment. But if I'm in Australia, um, I'm staying where I am. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, when you look at, when you look at the French, um, if, if you're in Europe, then okay, maybe you can make a case for it, but just travel is the big one. Um, you know, how, how many cases have we seen, um, at least here where, um, people who have come back from overseas have, have brought it back and in quarantine they've tested positive. That's that's still a major concern for me. Yeah. I, I, I just, I'm just still trying to wrap my head around what players are going are to be willing to take that risk. I, I concur 100% because it's just... And, and look, it is personal preference. If you want to go, go. But it's just... It's, it's at your own risk. It really is because you're going to be in a bubble. Someone is going to test positive, Joel. Someone is going to test positive. You're putting 500 people in a bubble. Someone is going to test positive. Someone, it's almost guaranteed that it's going to happen because we thought, we, some people thought that we were in the clear for AFL and then almost a player test positive for it. So it's just, it's not, it's not something you can control. It's something that's, that's just going to happen. The, the disease has spread enough by now. I think to to see that if people travel internationally, 
someone's going to bring it from somewhere. That's 500 people, and at the moment, one in more than every 500 people's got it, surely. Um, I don't know the actual stats on that, so don't quote me on that. But yeah, it's um, yeah, don't forget the bank. <laughs> yeah, no, d- definitely don't. But that that's probably an ignorant, ignorant, uh, ignorant comment on my part. But um, if I can get the word out, but yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just I, I'm still baffled that it is going ahead. And look, it is good in some ways. And like we could argue, we could argue so many points that the U.S. Open. Is great. It's great that it's going ahead, but it's also really horrible that it's going ahead because there's a there's always a catch twenty two, isn't there? There's always some good with some bad, and in this situation, um, I, I don't know what you think, but I think that there's a massive asterisk going into the tournament because there's a lack of qualifying. So the top hundred and twenty players will qualify automatically for the event, and then yeah. eight wild cards. But um, we went through yesterday, Joel, me and you, the fact that how many men's players are going to miss just by being outside that rankings. And it's not just the men, but it's the women as well. But some of the names in this list are staggering. Kevin Anderson, former US Open finals. Ivo Karlovic, former world number 13. And well, the doctor, who can forget him? Uh, Juan <laughs> Martin Del Potro, uh, US Open champion 2009. Andy Murray, US Open champion 2012. Marcel Granolias, Dennis Sistemin. Ernest Gulbis, the big seagull, uh, Robin Haasa, Victor Troitsky, who we know now has um, has COVID-19, Michael Moe, the young American, Marius Koppel, Quinton Alice, uh, Alexander Vukic, Bernard Tomic, uh, Duty Sailor, Tommy Robredo, and Max Purcell. So I threw a couple of Aussies in there for the Aussies that listen, but they would all miss their chance to try and qualify for this event, all of them. And you can't give wildcards to all of them because some of them are going to go to Americans which rightly so, it's the US Open. Um, one will probably go to an Australian because I think we have a deal with the USTA where we give them a wild card for the Oz Open. They give us a wild card for the US Open. So that's already two wild cards. There's six left. Or sorry, that's already that's already one wild card, seven left. You'd think three probably go to Americans. That leaves four. And out of those names, you think Murray gets one, you think Del Potro gets one if he's fit concerning really concerning yeah it is it is i guess it's 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 not really it's probably not really a true open um, no. obviously um doubles cut in half as well yeah um, no and you're doubles. not allowed to play singles and doubles you're not allowed to play both events yeah and and that as well and as we know there are a lot of players that um have their toes dipped in both ponds in terms of singles um and doubles um so i guess what's important to note is that the usta has committed 6.6 million us dollars in compensation um, to the ATP and the WTA um, as a result of those reduced draws. But what's interesting for me is that um, it's then up to the tours to distribute the money as they see fit. Now, we, as far as I've seen, we don't really know what the criteria is um, for the distribution of that money. So that's going to be an interesting one. And, yeah. um, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear um, from some of those lower-ranked players that are um, frozen out of this event um, because of that, um, you know, the, the set rankings, um, and to actually hear, um, you know, sort of what the what the correspondent uh, what the correspondence is, because a lot of those players do need the money. You know, this is yeah. their work, and um, you know, in, in that sense, the, the this US Open really does uh, amplify the the inequality um, that we're seeing in tennis, and um, 
you know, it's a, it's a shame. It's just another impact um, or another another problem that um, the pandemic is, has brought on. But um, that that's going to be interesting. That's going to be really, really interesting mm-hmm. to see what happens there. Yeah, and at least look, at least they're trying in terms of trying to get money to the players that would have been in qualifying yeah. the wheelchair event, which we do discuss with Nick McCarvel as well. Um, so it is good that they're trying, but it does amplify the inequalities. I do agree. And it's it's so, uh, I guess, what else is there to do, though? I guess at least they're trying and they're thinking of those players, but th- there's so many other situations where they could just go, you know what, no, we're not going to give them any money. We're just going to, you know, the players yeah. that qualified lucky enough to get into the tournament, we're only going to pay 128 players and and save our own ass, really, and not pay any extra than what we have to. The electronic yeah. li- line judges through Hawkeye, that's another cost-saving method and another sort of life-saving method, I guess, having less people on the grounds, less officials. Um, so there, no linesmen on any, court, on any court outside of Arthur Ashe or Louis Armstrong Stadium. Um, and then players only have allowed allowed to have three people travel with them in their entourage. But if you if you look at this, so if every player in the top in the one hundred and twenty eight um, has three pl- three people in their entourage, that's one twenty eight times three is three hundred and eighty four. Multiply that by two for the women's draw. That's seven hundred and sixty eight. That's yeah. singles alone, not including doubles. So 768 people in a bubble. It's a massive number. That's that's a lot. That's that's yeah. a lot. How that? Ugh. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't get I don't get how that's going to work. Yeah, look, I think it's important to add as well um, that we we shouldn't doubt that the organisers of any event really aren't doing their their utmost to a to organise their event, but also yeah. to keep the players safe. I Except think, the I Adria think, yeah. tour. Yeah, except <laughs> except the Adria tour, yes. But um, no, look, I, I don't think we can we can doubt that um, you know that, that the organisers are doing everything they can yeah. to make the event work and to do it safely. Um, I think just the unfortunate reality that we all have to accept, and um, you know, obviously in saying that, we're we're looking we're looking in from the outside, and we don't know the full picture. The players can um, can speak to this a lot more than we can, but. Um, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we do have to recognise that. Unfortunately, the reality of the situation that we're in at the moment is that there will be losers in this. Um, not everyone's going to win, um, yeah. and unfortunately, it's a bit of a domino effect, isn't it? Um, yeah. With uh, with COVID nineteen, businesses are losing money, and unfortunately, um, events like the US Open, um, when businesses lose money, they can't contribute sponsorship, and then they lose money, and then the result of that is that players lose money and the result of the players losing money is the coaches lose money and so on and so Every, forth. Yeah, it's, it's just, domino. Yeah, it's a domino effect and um, yeah, look, it's just it's just a really, really unfortunate situation to put it simply but um, yeah, I, I think you know, even though we have of course our concerns with how things are running, um, one thing that we do need to really say is that we have to be confident um, that the organisers and we have to back them in that they are yeah. doing everything they can to keep the players safe and also um, give give themselves the best chance of protecting their income. Yep, and look, the USTA has been accused of being too stringent with their rules so far, which I think is a good thing, really. You can't be too stringent yeah, in, this, in this period in time. So the USTA, hats off to them. Um, let's chat about it more with Nick McCarvel, shall we, Joel? Yep, let's get to him.
Joel, our first guest of the show today is one of the most revered tennis broadcasters in the world. If you follow tennis, you know who this man is. He's, uh, he works for all of the Grand Slams. He does wonderful work on the Australian Open social events. And also, um, he, he did a video, a couple of series with Craig O'Shaughnessy last year that I really enjoyed. Um, Nick McCarvel, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us here on Breakpoint Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Yeah, guys, listen, thank you so much for having me. Obviously, strange times in the world right now, especially here in the U.S., but I um, appreciate that we've got a little bit more to talk about in the tennis sphere from what's happened in the last week or 10 days versus we've really been on pause for the last couple of months. So it's nice to be with you here, obviously, and we've got some headlines to talk through, I think. Yeah, I know. Finally, we've had absolutely nothing to talk about for two months, but all of a sudden, <laughs> the last week, we've got... Uh, Grigor Dimitrov and the US Open, but we'll start with uh, with Grigor, Nick, and I saw your tweet last week saying that the um, the images of the Adria Tour were completely shocking, players um, hugging and high-fiving, no regard for social distancing, really, and the crowd um, cheering pretty raucous, all sitting next to each other, not spaced, and now we've seen that Grigor has, got, has tested positive for COVID-19. What are your immediate thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I did tweet that. Um, I think the first thing to clarify is that uh, we don't know when or how Grigor Dimitrov got COVID-19. So I think we have to put that out there. Yeah. I was concerned over what I saw uh, at the Adria Tour. And I, I think a lot of people from around the world felt that way. Maybe us Americans are a little more sensitive to COVID-19 right now because of how poorly our country has handled it, quite simply. And so, you know, I got a lot of pushback, Val, from that tweet um, from people saying that Serbia has handled COVID-19 so well and um, that it's not quite the same scenario in Europe as it is here in the States. Um, but, you know, my concern there was that these guys are coming from all over the world. You had Dimitrov, you had Djokovic, you had Yelena Yankovic was there, Marin Cilic has been a part of the Adria Tour, Dominic team, and these guys aren't just based in one part of it. They're all over the world. So that was more of my concern with the Adria Tour and all of those guys. Sasha Zverev was there, obviously, too, coming together. And, and you didn't see much of the social distancing that I think you guys in Australia have really been practicing, that we have been trying to practice <laughs> in the States. Um, and then separately, or off the back of that, obviously, the positive test from, from and for Greek around COVID-19 is... You know, we obviously wish him the best and everyone wants Grigor Dimitrov to be healthy. I mean, we want that for all of the players in professional tennis. But now the concern really comes to four because there have been some people that have been part of the pro tour and a few lower ranked players who have had the coronavirus COVID-19 previously. But Grigor would be really the first top upper echelon player to test positive. And obviously this coming off the back of US Open News in the last few days um, you know, Grigor would be in the main draw there. He was a semifinalist last year. Um, it, it just, it's a little bit of an alarm bell, but I also think maybe it, in a sense, the U.S. Open can learn from this and show that all of these pages long of details as far as how they're going to social distance, test, try to keep everything as clean as possible at the Open, that these are going to be necessary measures to keep all the players safe and healthy. Yeah, and you do mention the U.S. Open there. So you don't think there's any sort of any there's going to be any sort of kickback now with um with fans and and media and um and even players and tournament officials that the U.S. Open maybe shouldn't go ahead because of this, or do you think that there's enough time now between um, Dimitrov testing positive and the U.S. Open actually and the tours going back to coming back to fruition? Do you think there's enough time to blow it all over? 
Yeah, no, it's a fair point. I'm, you know, we're nine weeks away from the U.S. Open. Mm. So I, last week on Tennis Tuesday, the show that I co-host with Blair Henley, we were talking a lot about how there's so much that could happen from that, you know, June 16th, 17th announcement for the USTA to August 31st or August 19th when Cincinnati's meant to start in New York. So, yeah, does it give the tennis community some pause that one of the top men in the world has tested positive? Of course it does. But the U.S. Open is going to have to take things step by step. They haven't put in all of this effort, I don't think, the USTA to try to make sure that everything's ready as much as it can be and that they've put all these safety precautions in place. Player health and safety is what they've said is is their number one priority. So I wouldn't doubt that Stacey Allister, the new tournament director, and her whole team are on the phone 24-7 trying to make sure that when things pop up, like we've seen now with Grigor Dimitrov testing positive, is how do they recalibrate and make sure that everything they have in place for the U.S. Open at the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center and there's a lot of concerns, Val, that they're not that it's gone too far. That the USTA is being too stringent with their testing and their protocols and this quote-unquote tournament bubble. But the fact of the matter is, is you've got to keep the players safe and healthy. And for the economy, for the tennis economy, to come back into play, you've got to think of a new normal. And whether or not the safety threshold gets pushed past that because of more players testing positive. That's something that I I hope the officials in our sport are going to figure out to know how to react to before we get ourselves in a a bad situation where you've got so many players in one place and not necessarily as safe as they could be. Yeah, and clearly, Nick, that tennis economy probably does need the U.S. Open to go ahead, certainly the USTA. And I think from their perspective, you can really see why they're pushing so hard. I think the figure is something like seventy million on its own from broadcasts from ESPN, which is obviously um, a huge number, and something like eighty percent of revenue from the US Open for the USDA. So I guess you can really see why they're they're pushing so hard from it. But um, I guess from integrity point of view, I mean, just as a fan um, looking from the outside in, um, you, you, I kind of just can't help but look at the US Open with just a big asterisk um, in that obviously we're not going to have that normal, and because of all these restrictions like uh, obviously doubles is is cut in half no mixed doubles no wheelchair tennis um no qualies i think just from that perspective it's kind of hard just to wrap your head around so i guess how do you um how do you sort of react to that when um you know we have to kind of embrace this new normal because it feels kind of strange yeah certainly joel it feels really strange and i think you're well put there to call out the fact that the wheelchair players The wheelchair event was not a part of the U.S. Open plan. Dylan Alcott has been so outspoken about what he would like to see. First off, the players be consulted in some way. And I thought the USTA did a great job in responding to that. I wasn't obviously a part of those conversations previously when they decided not to have the wheelchair event. But I know that the USTA is now trying to work with the ITF to figure out how they can get some wheelchair competition in, whether it be at a separate site or alongside the US Open or what have you. So I think that's big. But um, it's tough. You know, we're in a situation that we've never faced before. You guys and I were talking about just how strange life is right now in general before we hit record. And it's the same with professional sports. And it just feels... You know, I I know that the Aussie football leagues have been trying to get back up and running with no fans. Uh, It's it's just a strange feeling to not necessarily have what we felt as normal be there as an option. 
And so the money piece is big. You know, if the USTA feels like they can put together, again, as we were just talking about, the safety aspect, making sure that this is as safe of an event as possible, it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's for the tennis economy that you guys exist uh, along with me in a global perspective, but then also from a grassroots perspective, from smaller tournaments, from the USDA had to uh, let go, they downsized 130 people. That's a fifth of their workforce Mm -hmm. without having to cancel the US Open. So that's just because of COVID-19 and the economic impact that it's already had. So imagine if your biggest driver of revenue, the US Open gets canceled, that's going to be felt two, three, five years down the line. So money should not be the final piece of the puzzle, but it certainly played a a big part of what we've seen in this decision-making. And you hope for the better, right? You hope for more grassroots programs in the future and community tennis and the player development program and smaller regional and national events and ATP challengers, all of that, the USTA has a hand in in the US. And so that's why this decision, I think, has felt loaded in a lot of ways. Dylan Alcott, I think, brought the kind of the dark underbelly of that to light and I think did a great job in doing so. But then you also have to kind of look at the economic side and how tennis exists as a mini economy, and that this is one of the four biggest tournaments of the year. And look at the FFT and the French Open having Roland Garros just a couple weeks after the the US Open. People have said that they feel like that's a desperate move from the FFT, but they've just dumped so many millions of euros into getting a roof, changing... Philippe Chatrier making Roland Garros a completely different tournament. So can you fault them for trying to have a tournament this year so that they don't lose all that sponsor and TV TV viewership? Again, it has to come back to safety. You have to try to make the players as safe as possible. If Grigor is the first domino in dozens or hundreds, of course, then you've got to take a really serious look at the schedule. But overall, I, I think that these leaders are trying to do the right thing in bringing back tennis in some way or another. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because it feels like there's really no kind of right answer. There's always going to be a loser in this situation. But I think with the US Open, Nick, one of the, I guess, new norms that really struck me was that um, there's only going to be lines people on the two main courts, Louis Armstrong and also Arthur Ashe, and it's, they're going to be replaced on the outside courts by some Hawkeye technology. Are you sort of across what, um, I guess, what that technology can offer yeah, Joel, I just lost you there at the end. But the Hawkeye Live technology that I've seen used, it's been used uh, in hits in, in different spaces in tennis for the last few years. So obviously we have had Hawkeye for the last few years. It's a company that produces live reaction video cameras of the tracking of the ball. So that is obviously then they do the dimensions of the court. You've got Hawkeye there that if a player challenges, you can bring up the replay. That's coming through the system live. So World Team Tennis has trialed it. I think we've seen some other events away from the tours utilize it as well. But now these Hawkeye live calls, all of these cameras are going to be used on the courts other than Louis Armstrong and Arthur Ashe. And that is essentially to cut down on the number of people on site. So from what I've seen, and I talked to a few players, actually I've done work with World Team Tennis the last few years, and people really like it. They, they think that the call is accurate. Um, sometimes it's kind of comical because you've got this player or you've got this official who's yelling through a computer voice, the call, right. As it comes, it kind of can startle you almost. But, um, from what I understand, the technology is really well respected within the sport. 
And I think it's great that you're just trying to figure out how to have a few fewer bodies on campus during the U.S. Open. And again, they're trying to balance that. Well, that's, you know, there's a dozen people per match of officials who aren't working necessarily. So it's just that checks and balances, I think, too, for the USTA. Yeah, and I think it does work out. I think if, if it does work out at the U.S. Open, we can look in the future and just say, well, it's worked in 2020. It's a good opportunity to trial some things, and we can put that into fruition in other tournaments throughout the tours um, in, in future years. So hopefully it does work, and um, fingers crossed. But another question is the qualifying and the lack of qualifying thereof. Eight wild cards and the top 120 being selected from each tour. A lot of big name players miss out, and we were we were looking at um, at the rankings before, and guys like Juan Martin Del Potro, Andy Murray, Kevin Anderson, Ivo Karlovic, um, uh, just on the men's side alone, miss out on based on their ranking. They can't give a wild card to all those players and not leave out a few Americans. So, does this doesn't help the tennis or the inequality between the top and bottom at all, does it? No, and I think the inequality comes into play, especially with points. Yeah. So I don't think they've necessarily made a full decision, Val, on how they're going to handle points. The money aspect is an interesting one to me because the USDA has committed $6.6 million US dollars to the two tours. And from what I understand, that's going to help nearly cover what would have been the qualifying cost, depending on how the tours want to disseminate that money among the players. That's up to the tours themselves. So... It was interesting. Ryan Harrison tweeted out the American player that there's the big economy piece, obviously. And then for a lot of these lower ranked players, frustrated, feeling less than, feeling like they're not respected or appreciated because there's no qualifying event. And Ryan's point was that, yes, that it's not a great situation, but they're trying to do what they can to get this event happening. And take take the money, essentially, because the money will be allotted to you via the tours. And there's just no right answer, you guys. Yeah. I mean, I could sit here and argue with you to the point of the USTA and fewer bodies, and they're going to get the money, and we want tennis to keep kicking along. And then I also could sit here and say, well, that's total BS, because look at these lower-ranked players who have worked their asses off to try to get as much, as high as they can in the rankings, and all of a sudden, if you're ranked 121, you don't get to play even qualifying for the US Open. So it's it's a real catch-22, and my heart goes out to these players, a lot of them who I know and I work with on a weekly basis, and it's just shitty, right? It's yeah. just a situation where decisions were made, and that's why I thought it was so great that Dylan spoke up the way that he did with the wheelies, because the wheelchair players are so well-respected, well they are some of the best athletes in the world, and they weren't even considered in being a part of the tournament. It, there's so many checks and balances and at least from what I know from working with a lot of these people is that you try to do everything with care and thought and leading with your heart. And a lot of time the money aspect can come back with it. And it, it's just a, it, it's a really tough situation, I think, not to have those, those qualifiers on site for a qualifying event. Um, and those are going to be the eight most coveted, I guess the 16 with the single straw, the, or the women's straw rather, men's and women's, eight on each uh, draw. Those are going to be the most coveted wild cards, I think, of the year. Oh, 100% agree. And um, you mentioned Dylan Alcott as well, that you, you'd know from being in Australia how much the crowd gets around him and Heath Davidson when they both pair up together. 
in their quad singles and doubles, and it's it's an amazing event. And the way that they go about their their um, their trade and the way that they play is just is unbelievable. The amount of strength and upper body strength that you need to play wheelchair tennis is is unbelievable. But moving on to the the players that may actually participate in the U.S. Open, Serena Williams indicated her intention to play. Nadal and Djokovic have been a little bit skeptical. They seem, I don't think anybody is really sure what their plans are. And on the women's side, Simona Hallett has said that um, she doesn't think she'll go. But what are your thoughts at the moment on um, on who you think will, will show up to Flushing Meadows? Yeah, I mean, you know, the USTA obviously showcased the fact that Serena was ready to commit right away. That was a big part of their press conference when they announced the tournament on Wednesday. So I thought that was big. Um, I'm not really surprised with Djokovic or with Rafael Nadal and the fact that they haven't 100% committed. Um, I think these guys make, you know, very strategic choices and Serena's already in the States. I think it's easier, it feels easier to her to travel up to New York, which she's done hundreds of times in her life. Whereas for those guys to take a transatlantic flight to go to New York City, which had been the hub of coronavirus for a couple of months, um, yeah, that can probably be a little bit intimidating. So I just have all respect for the players who haven't quite decided yet. Um, give them some time. I think they were talking about an early July. July 8th is the date sticking out of my head for an entry list that we'll see for Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. Um, listen, I, I'd love to see everyone there, but it is a, it's a personal choice. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of naysayers out there. We're in the midst of a pandemic, everybody. <laughs> this is a global yeah. pandemic. Yeah. And so for people to make a personal choice, I believe that I, I will have some work at the U.S. Open. I'm a New Yorker. I haven't been home in over three months. I would like to go try to see if I can go home and social distance and wear a mask and be stringent about living in COVID-19, would Simona Halep want to make the same risk from traveling from Romania to New York City? It sounds as though she's not going to do that. And that's her personal choice. Ash Barty, I've heard, is very on the fence as to if she wants to make the trip to New York versus going right to Europe, whereas you go all the way to the US and then to Europe. So it is a thousand percent to me a personal choice. And I respect anyone, whether it's Rafael Nadal's choice or a doubles player who barely made the cut. It's up to them, and the money is going to drive some of it, obviously, um, but people have to feel safe safe and healthy okay. to make that trip. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a great prelude, Nick, to what I wanted to ask you next. Obviously, we've spoken a lot about the players, but I think it's easy to forget um, that the COVID-19 period hasn't just affected the players. It's affected coaches, it's affected officials, and it's affected the media as well. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Robbie Koenig on the show, and he was sort of speaking about the fact that in tennis um, – Obviously, a lot of people that work in tennis media are freelancers and that they rely on opportunities coming up from tournament to tournament. So, um, I mean, how has the whole shutdown period affected your work? Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been a drastic change for me. You know, I went from being in Indian Wells, it was cancelled. I was meant to be in Charleston, the Fed Cup final, uh, the French Open, and then meant to go for six weeks and be in London for the lead-up to Wimbledon and, and stay there for the championships themselves. Um, I know that I'm not alone. You know, there's plenty of friends and colleagues that I have within the media. I think Val knows a lot of them pretty well, too. Y- you mentioned, Joel, the officials, the agents, the publicists, the Hawkeye team, the um, the uh, regionally the officials who work on different tournaments, whether they be in Europe or the States or Australia, 
Um, and then you look at the sponsors that have been kind of by the side of the tours and the slams. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's big time. And I think, you know, for me, I've been lucky. I, I've tried to sidestep a lot of it and take on more writing stuff than I usually do versus the live presenting stuff on radio or video and trying to make sure that I'm, um, staying as agile as possible. I just worked with Wimbledon on a video series that they're putting out of mini documentaries on Wimbledon anniversaries. We had our first one on Venus come out just the other day. So that was a cool project for me to work on. And, um, yeah, I've never pinched pennies the way that I have. And, uh, um, maybe a little bit embarrassing to say I've, I haven't faced something like this before, but I think a lot of people are in that situation where it's like, Oh, no one, I don't think anyone could have dreamed the scenario that we're all facing with the shutdown of the tennis tour. I work a lot in the Olympic space. So Tokyo was delayed from 2020 to 2021. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people within the sporting industry. I think that are anxious and hurting and hopeful that something is going to, to change. And, um, I think that that's a big reason, or I think that's one of the reasons or one of the impacts of the USTA decision is to try to give that tennis economy some sort of boost um, but yeah, we're just all going to have to be patient and I, I wish the best for the people who have a uphill battle here the next few months for sure. Yeah. And you couldn't have said it any better. We do know a lot of people in this tennis industry that are, that are freelancers and that are struggling. So fingers crossed that, and that's where you're right. The U S open going ahead is a big boost for all of those people, uh, in the world. So fingers crossed that it does help them a lot. And just before we do let you go, Nick, you're obviously, you're a big contributor in the LGBT tennis community. And, um, you do such a wonderful job there in, in saying that it is okay to be who you are and, you know, be comfortable with yourself and, you know, be free, you know, go and, Go and enjoy yourself and don't be afraid. And how how rewarding is it to do such wonderful work and have such an amazing voice in, in the community and to be kind of an inspiration for a lot of people? Oh, well, thanks for that, Val. I, you know, um, a couple of years ago, I started what's called the LGB Tennis Series. So it's an LGBTQ plus series of conversations. We've done a couple panels at the Australian Open. Tennis Australia has been abundantly supportive of the movement. And I actually have to say Tennis Australia walks the talk probably better than any other governing body in the world as far as LGBT participation and research and engagement with the community to get those people playing tennis in Australia. So kudos to them and the work that they've done with different partners within the Australian community to make that happen. Um, you know, for, for me, it was the idea to try to engage some of my fellow uh, uh, members of the queer community within the tennis media space. Uh, those, those of us that work in the tennis family year round, there's a, a lot of us that I think really wanted to see this conversation move forward past the one line of there's no out active ATP player. And that was never our goal was to try to out someone or invite someone out or get them to come out. The conversation has always been about what was Billie Jean and Martina doing? How do we push that forward? How do we look at someone like Casey Delacqua, who has lived such an admirable life as it, um, she's been sort of dragged into the media by Margaret Court in a lot of ways, um, questioning who she is and the family that she's a part of. So uh, for us, we've been really lucky to have Casey at a couple of our of our events. Renee Stubbs has participated. Billie Jean King has been there. Brian Vahaley, who's the first out former ATP player. 
um, has been really outspoken. And just in this month, uh, we've taken the LGB tennis series online. So we've been partnering with outsports.com, which is a queer sports community website. And we've been doing bespoke chats with people that are part of the queer community in tennis. And yeah, it's been a cool project for me for me as a queer person. And I think just trying to say that tennis is a sport that's welcoming to all. We love the sport from our heart because it's what we grew up with or, or we brought it on later in our lives and it's part of our professional lives. But I think we all have some sort of passion for it. Um, so I think that that was the, the onus behind the series and it's been fun to do it this month um, without sports uh, online, which has been cool. Yeah, you do such a wonderful job of it, Nick. So fingers crossed Thanks, that it man. goes from strength to strength. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And fingers crossed we'll be able to chat to you again very soon when there's some tennis that we can actually report on and actually discuss when uh, the tours <laughs> go back to fruition. But Nick McCarble, one of tennis's best broadcasters in the world, thank you for joining us on Breakpoint. Yeah, cheers, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Stay safe. Nick McCarvel there, one of tennis premier broadcasters internationally. What a wonderful speaker he is and what a wonderful custodian he is for the LGBT tennis community. And I think he does a wonderful job there in sort of spreading the word and just saying, you know, it, it is okay. You know, you need to be you need to be who you are and be proud of it. And I think it's um it's a wonderful message that he gets out to to all tennis fans out there. And um, we wish him all the best in that endeavor as well. But made some really good points that we do echo, Joel. And I, I think it was I think it was more the fact that the players, we have to respect that it's their personal preference as to whether they play the US Open or not. And we don't know if Nadal's going to go. We don't know if Barty's going to go. We don't know if Djokovic is going to go. We don't know, or we know that Federer is not going to be there. It could be the first slam since 1999 Australian Open that none of the big three will be at... Uh, will be at a certain slam, or hang on, maybe 1999 Wimbledon. I will, um, I will double check that with you. But um, yeah, it's it, it's staggering, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And when you think of it like that, it really sort of just it brings home the point again that we just are just living in completely strange times. But um, yeah, look, I mean, a, a big a big thing for me that um, you know, I think the organisers still have to work out. Um, tennis as a whole, really, not not just the USTA um, and the US Open organisers, the, the tournament organisers, but tennis as a whole, really. Um, got to work out a way where if players don't want to go to a certain event beca- uh, because they feel unsafe because of COVID-19, um, border restrictions, whatever it is, there still remains the point, how do we make sure that no player is left in the lurch um, when it comes to uh, points and when it comes to prize money as well. I think that's really, really important. As Darren Cahill said on last week's show, points for players is, what did he say? It's like the Bible, like yeah. the Holy Bible yeah. for players. Yeah. Um, so as as a sport, we really need to respect that. And, um, you know, I don't think players should, should be punished um, for saying, I'm, I'm, not so, I'm not sure about this. I feel unsafe traveling to the States or um, mm-hmm. Italy or wherever it is. Um, if they feel unsafe, then let them stay at home. But having said that, they shouldn't be docked of points and no. they shouldn't be docked of prize money either. Um, I think it's really important that everyone is treated with fairness. But again, how we achieve that um, is going to be a real headache, I think, for for, um, for the whole sport. So the power brokers need to get their heads together and figure out a way um, uh, figure out a way where all the players can um, can you know share. Um, and, and really just get what, what is theirs um, and what, what they're losing um, 
what they're losing through something that is just not their fault. <laughs> yep, I agree. And it was the 1999 US Open the last time that none of the big three were in a Grand Slam. Federer lost in the second round of qualifying at um, Flushing Meadows there. So that's my stat um, clarified. But yeah, you're 100% right. And look, that's why we've been arguing for so long, Joel, that the tournament, the rest of the year should just be cancelled. And as much as it hurts yep. us to say it because we want tennis to to come back, is it worth the risk? Is it actually worth the risk? And yes, it is the livelihood of so many people and, and Nick echoed it so well. And um, there's so many people that we know that um, their livelihood depends on tennis going ahead and sport going ahead in general like ours does. But it's it's difficult. It is really difficult. And you're wondering, is... <sighs> Are we trying to go above a pandemic here and trying to get international sport back too quickly? The Olympics has been cancelled. That would have been next month, I think. And yeah, um, it's just—is it worth it? That—that's—that's that's the big question, and that's the one where that. Well, I guess it's a million-dollar question. Um, and what happens by halfway through next month? Whether more players test positive, we'll, we'll never know. But if if players do start to test positive. Um, if I'm the ATP, WTA and ITF, I'm just saying, all right, to all the players that need it, here's a lump sum package, take it, we're cancelling the year, um, freezing all the rankings again, no year-end world number one, you can have the titles that you won, but that's it, year over, and yeah, I think that's the best uh, way it, to do it. it. Literally, it's funny, it literally is a million dollar question, right? <laughs> like literally, and I think I think Nick Nick articulated it pretty well, it's it comes back to the tennis economy and unfortunately it comes back um it comes back to the dollar and i'm i'm almost looking at it val at the moment as as not really um people trying to get sport back too quickly i'm i'm looking at it more as businesses trying to ensure their survival i I think that's what it is um and yeah again it's (laughs) in some respects it's every man for himself in, in a lot of ways um so it's again, it's just we keep talking about it. It's just the, the the vicious cycle. It's just going around and round and round. Inevitably, someone's going to lose out. Unfortunately, yep. And in sport, someone does lose out every day. So it's you know it's just a bigger loss than usual for a lot of players. But yeah, it's it's such a conundrum. And I think when we bring you next week's show, we'll know a little bit more about what's happening and and the and the events that have transpired over the last twenty four hours. So. We will keep you across that on our social media platforms. You can follow us at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast, same as Facebook as well. And you can follow us both at Joel Fruch and at VFebo96 on Twitter as well if you want to stay across the tennis news. But um, finally, Joel, our Benoit of the week dedicated to our favorite lovable Frenchman. Um, whether he may have a good week or a bad week, that's just Benoit, and you know it could be both. But it could be both in the same minute. You never know, depending on what happens during one of his matches. But last week it was Dominique Sabukova that took out our tenth Benoit. But we have a steamrolling leader in our Benoit of the Year competition, and Novak Djokovic gets another vote. He's on three now. And, well, who could go past his Adria Tour? We're going to start calling him Novak's Jokovic um, on the show from uh, from now on in because he doesn't like vac- vaccinating and he's spreading COVID-19 like his end-of-match celebrations from his heart to yours. And it's just, it is absolutely mind-boggling what he's done and what he's, what he's 
tried to set out to do here. And it was all in good faith um, with the Adria Tour, trying to raise awareness and trying to stop the spread of COVID-19, but it's just made it a cesspool and it, it's an absolute disaster. It's abhorrent what's happened and the lack of care, the lack of discipline, the lack of, um, the lack of humility, I guess they just, I guess the ego has got the better of them. And I think that's all we can say to that one. It's, it's just really disappointing. Yep. No, well said. Couldn't have said it better myself, Al. I think you, you summed it up nice and nice and succinctly there. And I know you've been uh, looking forward to, to, to reeling that off for, for quite a yeah. while, but I think you said it well, mate. Yeah. And, and also just, and I know, I want to ask you just before we do go, Joel, even if he does pass Roger Federer and Nadal's total of Grand Slams, can he actually be considered as the greatest of all time? Yeah, I think he can be. Um, I, I think, see, look, numbers are one thing, but I think at the end of the day, I think this this goat thing, and over the over the lockdown period, we've seen a lot of goat talk in any sport, right? In yeah. pretty much every sport, it's just yeah. been who's this goat, who's that goat. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the time it's just going to come down to um, the individual person and subject. Um, I, yeah. I think, especially in tennis, there's clearly factional support for guys like Federer, for Nadal, um, for Djokovic. Oh, the um, jo- don't get me started on Djokovic fans. That's a rant for another day. Yeah, but, and, oh, they look, are I don't think, heads. I don't think she's really got. Um, and just as a side note, um, when it comes to tennis, I don't think it really. I don't think she's really got um, sort of that completely loyal following like those three guys do. But even you got to we. Let's be real. We do have to throw Serena Williams in there as well. Yeah. Um, but look, I think I think it's just going to come down to the individual person. I think for so many people, there is just such a embedded love of one particular player, whether it's Novak or Fed or Nadal. Um, regardless of what the numbers are, there are people out there that just won't won't have their minds changed. I don't think by anything. There'll be a there'll be a set goat in their head. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's going to take a lot. Um, and, you know, probably I don't think anything will change the minds of some of those people, but um, each person will, will look at it differently. Yeah. Well, I personally don't think Djokovic can come back from this. I, I feel as though if you're the greatest of all time, you're a custodian on and off the court. And I think Roger and Rafa have been yeah, have been the idealistic athletes in that sense. And I think it's between those two. I don't even think Novak is... Is close in that sense because of the disreputes off the court now, and um, and even if he does pass them, I still consider Roger and Rafa to be. Even though Novak does have a head-to-head lead against them, it's not all about the numbers, and um, I just think those two have done so much off the court more so than on the court, and they've been custodians. And even if you look at a sport like the AFL, um, people consider Wayne Carey as as the greatest player that they've ever seen, but I think due to his off-field discrepancies, I don't think he can be considered. And I, I think that um, I think that guys like Gary Ablett Jr. is probably is probably one above that for me. For all you international listeners, you won't know anything that what I'm talking about now. But <laughs> that's why we'll uh, that's why we'll end the show. But um, yeah, Joel, thank you very much. It's been a, it's been probably the biggest news show that we've had um, in our in our. It's almost been a five year existence. But um, yeah, it's um, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat tennis again with you. And thank you very much. Yeah, it's been interesting, Val. And uh, well, when we come back next week, who knows what we're going to be talking about? We could, uh, we could have this, this could snowball so much. We could have a big old snowman in the backyard. So 
Um, let's let's wait and see what happens, but uh, it's going to be an interesting week ahead, that's for sure. Well, if it snows in Melbourne, you'll know about it on Breakpoint Podcast. Thank you very much, Joel. <laughs> Remember, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter. Um, you can follow Breakpoint Pod, uh, Breakpoint Podcast, sorry, on Instagram, Breakpoint Podcast on Facebook as well. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Wooshka, wherever you get your podcast will probably be there. I've been Val Febo. Hope everybody has a lovely day and a lovely week. Enjoy your news.